the Jewish views on Shabbat UK. The United Synagogue's initiative to encourage observation of the Sabbath is back for its third year. Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Condé Nast Traveller magazine ranks both Israeli cities within the top 40. And we'll find out exactly how Jews have shaped the world of ceramics. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. An important panel at the United Nations Educational, Cultural and Scientific Organization, or UNESCO, has this week approved a controversial resolution that ignores Jewish and Christian ties to the Temple Mount. The decision came a week after a similar resolution was approved by UNESCO. It brought angry responses from Israel, several world leaders and even the body's own director general. The Israeli ambassador to UNESCO said it was yet another absurd resolution against the state of Israel, the Jewish people and historical truth. A Labour activist who was suspended from the party after making controversial comments about anti-Semitism is trying to raise £10,000 for a legal action against Labour's General Secretary Ian McNichol. Jackie Walker, who is herself Jewish, is a member of the hard-left Momentum Group. She's posted a statement on the Crowd Justice website saying the leaked details of the investigation, before she'd even been informed of her suspension, were a breach of data protection laws. So far, 400 people on the Crowd Justice site have pledged money for her legal action. The former British ambassador to Israel, Matthew Gould, has been appointed to lead the UK's charge to maximise use of digital technology. With the title Director General for Digital and Media, he said he wants to make the UK the best place in the world to start and grow a digital company. Jerusalem and Tel Aviv have been voted among the 40 best cities in the world in Condé Nast Traveller's 2016 survey of destinations outside the United States. Readers of the luxury magazine put Tel Aviv at number 17, calling it vibrant and diverse with great nightlife and beaches. Jerusalem was a little further down at number 28 and was praised for its restaurants and cutting-edge art scene. And finally, Leslie Joseph became the fifth celebrity to be voted off Strictly Come Dancing at the weekend. The Birds of a Feather actress was eliminated after all four judges voted to save model and fellow Jewish contestant Daisy Lowe in the dance-off. Judge Rinder is still in, and bookies have got him at 33-1 to to win, so they don't think he will. That's the news. Here's the sport with Andrew. Thank you, Viv. History was made last weekend when Josh Burns became the youngest ever player to score in the Peter Morrison tie. The 16-year, 128-day-old midfielder netted the winner in London Lions' under-21 1-0 win over Scrabble, and in doing so became the youngest scorer in the competition's 58-year history. Light middleweight boxer Tony Milch says he's aiming to show he's a championship-level fighter when he returns to the ring at York Hall. Looking to maintain his 100% winning run in what will be his 12th professional fight. And finally, Team Cycling Academy made history by not only becoming the first ever Israeli pro team to compete at the UCI World Championships, but by doing it in an Arab country. The team's veteran Dan Craven said, Racing in Qatar as an Israeli team was for me and my teammates a message of peace. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest from the world of Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Richard, as ever, we shall start off with the front page and the headline about Jewish Syrian refugee children. Chaotic scenes in Calais this week as the issue of the refugees just across the English Channel have really come to a head. 200 children have come over to the UK. They're being processed in the uh, UK Visa and Immigration Office in Croydon. We have discovered that one of these children is a Jewish boy, an English-speaking boy. He's dreaming of hoping to start a new life here in Britain, doesn't have his parents with him, fleeing war-torn Syria. The Jewish community, particularly the reform movement, have been very proactive in raising this, bringing this to our attention, bringing the crisis of the refugees to our doorstep. It's, as I said, been absolutely chaotic. Several hundred more children perhaps on the way. Lots of finger wagging, lots of anger at the inability of the UK government to act effectively. Of course, we had the Dubs Amendment with people drawing comparison and equivalence with the kinder transport. And obviously, Lord Dubs was one of the children saved by the kinder transport. So details very sketchy at this stage. But one of these children is indeed a Jewish boy and watch this space in the weeks to come. It would be amazing if we could perhaps speak to him or his carers about where he might end up. Now, I wouldn't be satisfying my levels of curiosity and potentially those listening as well if I didn't ask, how is it that we know that he is Jewish? Well, as I said, details are sketchy. I've had conversations with people that have been processing this young boy, things that unfortunately I cannot publish at this stage, confidences that unfortunately you know cannot be broken. So of course questions are asked. He's an English speaker. The people that have been vetting him are happy and confident of his uh, ethnicity and religious background. So at this stage it has been, let's say, quantified rather than actually confirmed. This story in particular really brings the refugee crisis slightly closer proximity to the Jewish community. So far, it's mainly been humanitarians within the Jewish community going to Calais and giving aid and showing their concern for refugees. But now with kind of a Jewish refugee, we're seeing what it's like for one of these vulnerable people to be one of us. It can be obviously very difficult to figure out who these people are, where the legitimate reasons lie. Obviously, you've got these things in the news at the moment of middle-aged men with receding hairlines, pretend to be under 12s, people giving these tearful explanations of where they came from that then turn out to be a tissue of lies. So everything needs verifying and obviously the most deserving require the best support and infrastructure. And I hope, yeah, this young Jewish boy is is amongst those who's most uh, looked after when he finally settles here in the UK. Well, it is an issue of much contention and I'm sure that the ongoing saga will continue for many weeks to come. The next story is a rather nice interfaith story about a mosque. Yes, you heard me. A mosque hosting Sukkot. Yes, we juxtapose two stories about interfaith sukkahs this week on page four. We have a fabulous story, uh, an expression of positive interfaith work between Jews and Muslims here in London. Congregants at Bronsby Park Shul set up a sukkah at the Al-Kohai Foundation Mosque. And there's a lovely picture on page four of Rabbi Baruch Levine with his lulav and etrog in hand outside the mosque with the local imam. So very, very positive there. Obviously, with mitzvah day approaching and lots of interfaith work being done there. I think 40,000 people have 
all sorts of faiths and denominations are going to be engaged with that. It's a really positive story reflected in the fact that I think we've had something like 3,000 shares on Facebook. So clearly a big appetite there for people to share a positive story about Jews and Muslims working together. And then, as I alluded to opposite, we have a story about how Palestinians were welcomed to a sukkah in the West Bank and then they were subsequently arrested by the PA. So it gives you, I think, a, a sense of the of the two ways that you can look at that story and look at it in a positive way or over in the West Bank, a, a very negative outcome. Well, I'm personally more of a glass half full kind of person. And as a result of that, I can't help but feel that with 3000 likes on social media, that hopefully people can only see the positives in this, Jack. Yes, definitely. There's there's lots of positives here. There's lots of positives about charity and and how festivities can bring people together. I think we often associate Jews and Muslims having conflict because of the issue of Israel-Palestine, but seeing a picture of a rabbi holding a little of an etrog and a Muslim leader looking at somebody holding you know, a palm branch kind of with curiosity. He does look like slightly perplexed. He's like, why is that man holding a lemon and a stick with loads of, yeah. loads of leaves on it? But it, it's a nice moment. They're sharing a moment. It, it, it creates questions and it creates dialogue and it makes people... Bring, it brings people together because if you if you have if you have to get to know somebody if you have to get to know somebody then it breaks down some of the ignorance and the barriers that are built up. Yeah, I think Sukkot is an is an emblem, isn't it, for open house as well. It's a Sukkah with no doors. Come one, come all. So it's a lovely time of the year to do this sort of thing. It certainly is. Well, also moving on, we have Jewish students who are determining their future, but not necessarily in the way that you would expect them to do so. Why is that? Well, I'm going to pass over to Jack on this one because I graduated thousands and thousands of years ago. But I will simply just set it up by saying we have done a story about some straight A students. These are absolutely top notch, triple A distinction, A level students who in their wisdom have decided they're not going to go to university. They're not going to go to college. They're going to go straight out to work. Have they made the right decision? Obviously, financially, £9,000 a year. I, I was about 28, I think, before I paid off my student debt. And it wasn't as expensive, obviously, as it is now. So these are people 18 plus that have decided no, university is not for them. They're going to go and get a salary. It takes a certain amount of courage to kind of snub the the popular opinion that you have to go from school to university. You have to know what you want to do. And I think all the people here realised that going into another institution after school wasn't the way forward. They wanted something less structured. They wanted to be able to follow what they wanted to do. And if I'd have known that I wanted to do what I'm doing now, i.e. writing for the Jewish News... I don't know if I would have gone to university. I, I don't know if a couple of years working for a newspaper would have been more valuable. Mm. And I don't know, in, in all honesty, if when you're 18, you know what you want to do. So, you know, on the one hand, university is an invaluable experience. On the other hand, it opens up a lot of doors for you and it gives you the chance to explore what you want to do. It's really interesting that you say that about knowing what you want to do and also if you had your time again, would you have gone to university? I don't normally make myself much of an open book on this programme because it's not really my place to do so. However, I didn't go to university. I've never made that a hidden secret. I actually left school at the age of 15 because my birthday fell within the summer holidays and I was so determined to earn a wage that I just didn't see further education as being what I wanted to do. But I was even more lucky to know that I had a strong hankering for radio and for broadcasting. And for me, the lessons came from actually working in that radio environment. And as far as I'm concerned, I now work primarily 
at a radio station that I wanted to work at for an organization I wanted to work at. And as a result of it, I have, I'd say, as far as that's concerned, no regrets. But there are other regrets that we'll leave to another time. Just very quickly, Shabbat UK is nearly upon us as well. So with that in mind, it's uh, hurtling towards the 11th of November, which is when Shabbat UK is, and I believe that Jewish News are media partners. Yes, Shabbat UK, everybody across the UK, and I think it started in South Africa. So you could say everybody worldwide from all sorts of parts of the planet are going to be celebrating Shabbat. It's the one time of the year, it doesn't matter what your denomination, what, what your level of observance is, it's the one time of the year where you can recognise Shabbat for what it is, you know, that, that moment at the end of the week when we all come together, reflect, look forward and, and have have family quality time. The thing that we're doing with Shabbat UK, which is, I think, very symbolic, the most evocative and symbolic thing about Shabbat, which is the lighting of the candles. So we're doing the great Friday night light, which is our opportunity to tell the rest of the community, even if you're only going to do one thing, you know, strike that match, light those lights, uh, say that brucha, and just have that moment with your family. We're going to be giving away little candle holders in the issue just before Shabbat UK, which takes place on the 11th, giving everybody a chance to actually take part in something and feel really part of a very, very special part of our community. Well, we will be hearing more about Shabbat UK throughout this programme, but unfortunately that's where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. On a lighter note, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv have been voted among the 40 best cities in the world in Condé Nast Traveller's 2016 survey of destinations outside the United States. Readers of the luxury magazine determined the results, and although some of us might understand and know the reasons why they made it onto such a prestigious list, others may not. With that in mind, Clive Roslin has been speaking to travel expert David Siegel from West End Travel to tell us what makes Israel's two main cities so great. David Siegel, you're the managing director of a well-known travel firm. Why is it, can you tell me, that Jerusalem's always been a very popular resort to people to go to, but apparently people are flocking to both Jerusalem and Tel Aviv at the moment. Why is that? It's a very fair question, and there's not an easy answer, but the simple answer is that Israel over the past years has become more and more interesting, more and more acceptable, uh, more and more people are curious to see what this country really is all about. So leaving aside the Jewish market, which will always go to Jerusalem, which will always go to Tel Aviv, to Haifa, to Netanya, anywhere in Israel, there's been over the last few years a real shift of emphasis where people who want to go somewhere different and are prepared to go, I'm talking from this country, further afield, are now looking at Israel as short haul. In the old days, you were getting on a long distance flight. Uh, Today, Israel is pretty much short haul. Tel Aviv became increasingly popular over the years as a party capital, as a city which never sleeps, as a city which offers the tourists so much to do. And therefore, by extension, there's been a little shift of emphasis that people are now going to Jerusalem, A, because it's such a great city, B, because it's such a 
curious and wonderful city and B, because it's really the cradle of civilization and the foundation stone of everything that this world is all about. Yeah, it's still, that, that I think is the most exciting thing about it. Jerusalem, when you go there, you could be way back in any part of, the, of history that you want to be. Absolutely. And it's, it's depending which part of Jerusalem you are. We were always fun of saying that in Istanbul, it's where East meets West. Well, I think it's still in Jerusalem where East meets West, because on the west side of Jerusalem, it's very modern, high-rise hotels. You could be in any international city, but just go a few hundred yards further, and you're coming to the old city of Jerusalem, which is a completely different world. Would you say that most non-Jewish people, they want to go to Jerusalem for its biblical history, and that that's the reason why they go? Very much so. And certainly they want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. There's no question about it. And when you go to Jerusalem today, as I was in Israel just last week, and you're seeing loads and loads, coach loads of Japanese and Chinese and people from Vietnam and from Burma, from all over the world coming to Jerusalem, they are coming to follow history. That is for sure. They're not going to for the fine grill rooms at the King David Hotel or, or, or the opera. They're coming to see, to follow what was in history, uh, follow the footsteps of Jesus. There's no question about that. And you're talking about people who are not actually Christian then, because the Japanese and the Chinese and... Absolutely. And I think it's fair to say that when you look at Israel and you take the three major cities, let's say Tel Aviv, Jerusalem and Haifa, the entire emphasis of tourism will always be in Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem, it ends in Jerusalem. And there has been a shift of emphasis because perhaps in the past people have been going to Tel Aviv and popping in, so to speak, to Jerusalem. Today they're actually going to Jerusalem to stay for three or four nights and to savour the atmosphere of the place. And there are different atmospheres. The weekend over Shabbat atmosphere is a completely different atmosphere to the midweek. And, and, and so people are finding that Jerusalem has so much now to offer. It's catching up by leaps and bounds, and it's giving Tel Aviv a real run for its money. Is there not a, a fear among people who think that it might be dangerous to go to places like that? I suppose, yes, it depends why they're going and what they're going for. But I suppose at the back of their mind, they're going to Jerusalem. And, and look, nobody wants to go to any country and take a chance. Fingers crossed that you get home unscathed and you've been lucky. That's not the name of the game. If you want to do that, you go to Switzerland or Italy, where you know there's not going to be any trouble on the border. But I think over the years, people have become used to the notion and to the idea that Jerusalem is as normal a city as anywhere else. And whilst it's no point showing statistics that possibly there'd be more incidents in London or in New York than there are in Israel or in Jerusalem, people aren't going for that. But I think once they get there, yes, there is a little bit of nerves and there'll be the odds person or the odd wife will say to her husband, must you go, which she wouldn't say if they were going to Copenhagen or Vienna. But having got there, and I've been with football teams who've gone to play matches in Israel, some of them nervous, some of them telling their wives, I promise you I'll phone you every hour. It doesn't happen. As soon as you get there, that blue sky is the same as anywhere else. Yeah. And once they get to Jerusalem, they savor the atmosphere. I think the risk or the worry or the problem of any incident really does leave your mind. But why would these same people be interested in going to Tel Aviv? I can understand all that about Jerusalem, but why would they want to go to Tel Aviv? Tel Aviv is a dynamic city. It's grown from nothing. It's grown from sand. 
uh, 50 years, 60, 70 years ago, however long ago it was, there were a few little enclaves of Jewish settlers. It was sand. It was old. It was almost depressing. Today, it's the largest city in Israel with a half a million plus people who live in the city and another half a million who come in every day to work. It's a very bustling city. And as a Jew, when I go into Tel Aviv and I see those high-rise 40, 50, 60-story skyscrapers dominating the Israeli part of Tel Aviv, it actually makes me feel very proud that Israel's not just a country of business people, they're also a country of builders. So they've built Tel Aviv into a magnificent international city, and that is why so many conferences, conventions, special events, meetings, internationally, medical meetings, high-tech meetings are all taking place in Israel. And they perform, they have to stand on their own feet. Gone are the days when the emotion takes over and say, well, we're going to Israel, and if they screw us around a little bit or mess us around, well, it's Israel. That emotion has gone out of the window in the same way as traveling on El Al. In the old days, people would travel on El Al because it's the safest airline. It probably still is. But today, that emotion has gone. And we've said to El Al over many, many years, stand on your own feet, compete with the outside world, with Iberia, with Lufthansa, with SAS, with any Botswissair. And the same with Tel Aviv. They compete very, very well with the great destinations of Europe, with Istanbul, with Vienna, with Nice, with Paris, each city offering something different. But Tel Aviv today is, is just an amazing city, full of culture, museums, opera, theatre, restaurants, nightlife. It's a stag capital of Europe, apparently. I thought Tallinn was in Estonia, but I've just been told today that Tel Aviv competes very well with it. It's not far to go. Four hours after flying four hours, you're, you're fastening your seatbelt ready to land. Travel expert David Siegel from West End Travel talking to Clive Roslin there about what makes Tel Aviv and Jerusalem worthy of a place in Condé Nast Traveller magazine's top 40 destinations for 2016. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be back for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Kate are joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas and lawyer Denise Lester. They'll be discussing Shabbat. Plus, I'll be finding out about the Jewish Museum's latest exhibition, which shows exactly how Jews have been instrumental in shaping the world of ceramics. But first, speaking of Shabbat, the United Synagogue's Shabbat UK initiative returns for a third year in a row on the 11th and 12th, obviously, of November. It's aimed at encouraging Shabbat observance through a number of local community projects, such as challah making and candle lighting. To find out more about it, Kate Fulton has been speaking to Rabbi Pinchas Hackenbroch from Woodside Park Synagogue. Kate started by asking Rabbi Hackenbroch to tell us exactly what is Shabbat UK. Shabbat UK is part of a worldwide phenomenon called the Shabbos Project, which came uh, as the brainchild of Chief Rabbi Warren Goldstein in South Africa three years ago. And it was something that's been adapted and integrated as part of the celebrations of the Shabbat by our own Chief Rabbi, Chief Rabbi Mervis. What was the motivation for it? What did he want to bring? What was lacking for us? I think there are several aspects to Shabbat UK for him and in terms of the benefits for us as a whole community. 
Firstly, he wanted to encourage greater engagement with Shabbat observance in some shape or form for the community as a whole. Secondly, there is the opportunity to unify large numbers and segments of our community across the divides. And thirdly, of course, there is the benefit of empowering our communities to take on a project and to really run with it. And I think that's something which has really ignited the imagination of so many communities up and down the lengths of this country. Take us through some of the programme offerings this year. So a couple of the highlights which the Chief Rabbi himself has initiated is firstly he's encouraged low, on the local level great chalameks, which are in each community and each area of the country. There are going to be communities baking and making chalas up and down the country. We in our own community in Woodside Park expect over 200 people. It's the second year we're running it and we're doing it on a Wednesday night and people old and young People come with their male children, and female. male and female, children, grandchildren. It's something really intergenerational and it's something very, very special for everyone to get involved with, just making chal and having a lot of fun. That sounds fabulous. Is there any programme for the kids? Yes, on the Tuesday, the 8th of November, the Chief Rabbi is bringing together for a Kabbalat Shabbat to get together over 1,500 school children from 21 Jewish schools. And just going back to the Chalabake, it sounds like it's going to be quite different this year. It's not going to be one big Chalabeg, but very much more community. Yeah, I think that, that a couple of years ago, the idea, the idea was in sheer numbers. It was something very impressive in seeing so many people engaged and involved in something collectively. But we already saw the benefit last year as a community in feeling, in engaging as a community in something more personal. And people came along in groups and they wanted very much to be on a table with their family so that they could experience it on a more personal level. And I think that's the benefit and will be the benefit of the Chalamiks that are going on up and down the country. In fact, my wife is doing one in our own community and then the next night she's flying to Glasgow to do one there. So we have Scottish Chalamiks as well this year. Lovely Platy Tell me the other programmes, the other things that are going on. There's the Great Friday night light which is um, the idea of encouraging everyone to light candles on a friday night for some people it's a given but for so many it's something that they may not have taken on themselves or may have fallen by the wayside and it's something so simple to light some candles and to bring some light into their lives and into their families' lives on a friday night when they sit around that friday night dinner so we've got the, earlier on in the week, we've got the Friday night. And what's happening on the Shabbat itself? The beauty is, is that each community will do what suits them. It's very much been encouraged that every community is different. We're very diverse as a community. And therefore, everyone's tailored their programs accordingly. For us, we're having a chicken soup Friday night discussion debate. And on Shabbat itself, we're having Israeli war disabled that will be joining us and we'll be having discussions and debates and interactions throughout the day with kids programs. And many communities have come up with similar or varied programs, which will engage with the whole community and of their local communities over the course of the whole of the Shabbat. And uh, I think that is really the great strength of this year's Shabbat UK project, that you can dip in and dip out and do as much or as little as you want. So it's very much up to each individual and to each community.
One of the criticisms in the past has been we talk about ourselves as a community, we talk about Jews, and yet it was very much a united synagogue initiative. The, there, was, there was no input from the, any of the Hasidic groups, there was no input from the liberal or reform, and that was criticised by some, and some of our listeners may well be wondering, how are we going to make sure that this is an inclusive Shabbat UK? I think that's a fair point, and that concern we have tried to address. Firstly, one of the ways that we have addressed it on, in a, is the encouraging local communities to reach out to not just those which are attendees on a regular basis, but those which may come exceptionally infrequently. Secondly, we are also encouraging local communities to think about those which may not be affiliated in any sense to their community. And we, for example, have encouraged our members to try to have divide ourselves into regions. And so, for example, in your street, your neighbours will get together or in blocks of flats, they'll get together and have a collective Shabbat experience, which really transcends the boundaries of any religious belief or commitment. That is what we're about, isn't it? And it does sound like it's going to yes. be a beautiful... So. A person wants to find out more about it. They, how do they even start going about it? Is there is there a website? There, are, there is a website, which is the Shabbat UK website, which you can go on and you can find further information. There are also adverts and commercials, which you'll find on buses and across across all the media outlets in which you can engage. And furthermore, most communities in most neighbourhoods, are already actively engaged and involved in programmes. And I'm sure that if you approach your local community and speak to your friends and neighbours, you will find something near you which will be appealing and which you'll be able to engage with. It's nice to actually stretch out an arm, as you say. What about people who are not actually a member of a specific synagogue or, or even a community? Can, can they choose where to go? Absolutely, absolutely. Our community, it is completely free this year. We're not charging anything. We're not making any lists or no reservations. It really is. We want everyone in the local community and anyone who would like to take part in this project to come along and get involved. And if somebody was on their own and feeling a bit nervous, but a bit lonely... They'd be sure of a, of a welcome. Absolutely. And there are some people, you've touched on a very important point, that can't get out of the home. So how do they get engaged and involved with something which seems quite community-centric? So one of the ways that we reached out to many of those which are homebound in previous years was sending out packages of food. So they would be able to get a visit from somebody on the care committee, or even I, I did as many as I could. And in that way, they'd be able to experience, to some degree, the Shabbat experience and get involved. Rabbi Pinkus Hackenbroch from Woodside Park Synagogue talking to Kate Fulton there about this year's Shabbat UK. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze, a reminder that we now live stream the Jewish Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. That all-important address is coming up, but that means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio 
at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. But first, the latest exhibition at the Jewish Museum tells us how ceramicists transformed British studio pottery and influenced successive generations of ceramic artists. It's called Shaping Ceramics, and I've been along to the Jewish Museum to find out more. I've been speaking to Joanne Rosenthal, the curator of the exhibition. I started by asking Joanne to tell us exactly what the exhibition is all about. This is an exhibition that showcases the contribution to British studio pottery made by ceramicists of Jewish heritage in the UK. We're looking at 13 different Jewish ceramicists who have worked over about a period of 80 years, many of them still practicing today, making art. It's not an obvious subject for, for the Jewish Museum to do. We felt that there was a real story there. Well, a story indeed. I mean, obviously, we can't actually gain access to the exhibition yet because it is still being built. But certainly some of the images that are readily available on the leaflet that people can find on the Jewish Museum website, we'll give that address out later, certainly imply some very creative and impressive influences on the ceramic world. And I've got to confess a complete ignorance. So different is this to any exhibition that I've ever seen here at the Jewish Museum before. I wouldn't have even thought of pottery being something associated with Jewish history. Obviously, with the rag trade and with weddings and things like that. Yes, of course, there's an obvious Jewish element. But where was the obvious Jewish element in this? Well, as soon as you start to dig into the kind of big names of 20th century studio pottery in Britain, you you realise that many of the most important figures were refugees from Nazi Europe, Jewish refugees who settled in the UK. So names like Lucy Rhee and Hans Koper in particular, two of the greats of studio pottery, they may not be making Jewish work, but they're Jewish people whose lives were completely shaped by 20th century history. So that's a very, very interesting story that we tell. The impact of the Second World War on pottery in the UK in that it imported modernism from the continent through all of these very interesting artists who settled in Britain. And is it specifically about mainstream pottery that's been influenced by Jews or are there any Jewish artifacts as well within this? That's a, that's a good point actually. The final, the, the exhibition is divided into three sections and the final section is where we look at ceramic art that deals explicitly with Jewish themes and particular themes of Jewish history and Jewish identity. Understandably, unsurprisingly, the Holocaust features quite strongly through the work of Jenny Stolzenberg in particular that visitors may be familiar with and the work of another ceramic called David Jones. But we also have work that explores ideas of creation, biblical stories, Jewish identity more broadly. And I'm always fascinated whenever there is an exhibition on at the Jewish Museum or any exhibition for that matter. How do you gather these artefacts? Where do they come from? They come from lots of different places. All of the work that is on display has been gathered from other collections with, with, a, with a few small exceptions. So it's private and public collections across the country from Stoke-on-Trent, as you might expect when, you, when it comes to pottery, across Scotland, all over the country. Actually, as we speak right now, things are being packed up and transported around to London for the installation. So that must be quite a mission to coordinate that. It is, yeah. And you don't want to make any mistakes when you're transporting 
porcelain and fine pottery so yeah it's quite it's quite an operation and expensive i shouldn't wonder oh definitely yeah and we're very <laughs> grateful to our sponsors i should say um, many sponsors have made this exhibition happen and yeah it's a, it's an expensive thing to um, pull together all of this work and we hope we're sure that people will enjoy it because it, it really will be a beautiful display of very very special artwork is there anything that you can say that you've learned along the way from putting all of this together I've learned a huge amount because I was a complete, I was completely ignorant about ceramics in general. One of the things that we're working on at the moment that I should say is putting together a studio, a potter's studio in the exhibition, because we wanted, as well as showing the products of all of these wonderful ceramicists, we wanted to show the process as well. So we're going to have live demonstrations. And that's been quite a a learning experience for me, uh, working out what, you know, what potters need to make pots. So we've been organising a wheel for potters to throw on and tools, and it's quite a messy business. That's been quite a, a learning experience. But the narratives, I think, have been the most interesting. The narratives in particular of the emigre artists who came to the UK is really interesting because people may know their work but they may not know their personal stories which is so important which we're hoping to bring out in the exhibition. Now often in the past your exhibitions have been quite interactive whether that means that you've just got buttons that people can push and videos come up or something like that. How does the interactivity in this exhibition work? Because I can't imagine you're going to let people be handling the ceramics somehow. They definitely won't be handling the ceramics that are on display but they will be handling clay. <laughs> so we have, well, there'll be an opportunity for visitors to um, create their own work through modelling clay and to display it in a section of the gallery. So that's a fun interactive thing for all all ages, I would say, but I'm sure that younger visitors will enjoy that in particular. And as I said, the the pottery studio will be the site of all these different demonstrations. And we, we also have a lot of workshops um, where people can get involved themselves. So whether that's um, beginners workshops with ceramics or making Hanukkah lamps. So there's a, there's a lot of activity that will be going on, a lot of interactivity. And as well as displaying ceramics, which is the kind of primary purpose of the exhibition, there will be a lot of film material for people to engage with, which will be uh, very interesting. Tell us about some of the events that surround this as well, because you always have events when it comes to exhibitions. We have a huge programme of events for this exhibition that we're very, very excited about. In particular, people will be able to see lots of different ceramicists and potters at work. Interestingly, some of the people who are on display in the exhibition will be giving their time and doing demonstrations. Um, But also um, students from the Royal College of Art and Central St. Martins and local potters from London and and around the country. Um, But we have lots of very interesting family events, family days, clay workshops, Hanukkah ceramics activities. And as I said, the ceramics workshops and, and talks. Ray Silverman, who, whose work is in the show, will be doing a special in-conversation event. There's something for every, everyone, I would say, with this exhibition, all ages. See, what's really fascinating me, just since talking to you about this, is that I thought, when I first saw this, I thought, hmm, an exhibition about pottery don't mean to be rude but what is there about it that that could be interesting enough to warrant a whole exhibition but it feels as if there is you've only scratched the surface somehow with this definitely since we kind of put together our shortlist of what we wanted in the exhibition so many other ceramicists have have become um, known to us have approached us and we found out about this massive wealth of talent that exists in the country so much interesting stuff going on and, and and as I said, the history, these stories we'll be bringing out is so fascinating. And we, we could have we could have focused on just two or three of the ceramicists that are in the exhibition and filled the entire building with their lives and their work. But we've we've managed to pack in 13 different people that we think, you know, will have something interesting to say. 
Excellent. Well, there's not a great deal of choice then in that case for people to get their heads around. So I suppose you better give the website just so that they can go and find more information. Yep. The website is www.jewishmuseum.org.uk. And the exhibition runs from? From the 10th of November this year to the 26th of February 2017. Joanne Rosenthal speaking to me there about the Jewish Museum's newest exhibition, Shaping Ceramics. It runs from the 10th of November 2016 until the 26th of February 2017. And for more information, you can always go to jewishmuseum.org.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Kate Fulton and me today is community volunteer Andy Lucas and lawyer Denise Lester. The subject today is based on what Kate was talking to Rabbi Pinhas Hackenbroch about earlier, Shabbat UK. The United Synagogues Initiative returns to a third year in a row on the 11th and 12th November. So we thought we'd ask, what does Shabbat mean to us? And also, why do people put the high holy days above it? Andy, let's start with you. You observe Shabbat most weeks, don't you? I do. And I find that it's a way of relaxing and chilling out for the day. I don't have to think about what I'm going to do. I know that I I have to be there for 10 o'clock or whatever. And it, it's a way of just relaxing, basically, joining in with the service, singing. I just love it. I just love the Saturdays. I very rarely go on a Friday night, I have to say. But when I do go on a Friday night, it's a much smaller congregation. It's in the smaller hall. And again, it's very, very personal. It's, it's just lovely. And Kate, do you clearly agree with that? I do. We, I go to, we observe Shabbat and we're Shoma Shabbat, so we're sort of more for the United Synagogue perspective. And on one hand, you want to make sure that you bring the people to Shabbat less than you bring Shabbat to the people, if you see what I mean. You want to, but this whole Shabbat UK idea should really be a wonderful experiment, an idea to really show people what an oasis in the week Shabbat can be. No phone, no handbags, no money, no no ordinary weekday activities. And you focus on the spirituality. Then it should be beautiful. And does it really work? Yes. It really does work. I mean, you know, even practical things like leaving the house, I would never leave the house without my phone. I, I, like, I couldn't even walk to, the, to my outside freezer without putting my phone in my pocket. And it, you just feel liberated and you shed this just weekday feeling is all I can describe it no money or we walk you know I will stand and talk to a neighbour for 10 minutes when would I ever do that on a Tuesday afternoon Denise do you, do you agree with all that I do and I think that the Shabbat UK initiative it's now in its third, third year, year yeah. is absolutely wonderful and certainly I've made two and in particular one special friendship which is now coming into our third year with someone who like myself, was looking for the spirituality at the time. Shabbat to me is more complex, actually. I'm very conscious of it. I know that it's a day of rest. I'm very conscious of the sundown going down on Friday night and also the end of Shabbat. And I do feel it has a mystical feeling to it. Um, Classically, there's the Shekhinah 
um, Hashem's fem- feminine presence, God's feminine presence coming down. But it's more complicated for me. This is because I consider myself to be a struggling Jew. And because I'm single and I don't have that family dynamic to easily observe um, Shabbat, whilst I will go to synagogue, to shul, and I definitely won't work wherever I can help it. That's my demarcation line. I also take it as a day of rest and attempt to sort of achieve some form of mindfulness. And that could involve going walking, for example, and rituals when I'm at home, such as reading the Jewish news (laughs) and just having, you know, and just having a, um, a nice, peaceful time. It's lovely what you're all saying, and I couldn't agree with you more. But in fact, I wonder how many of the people who actually come uh, next next month on the 11th and 12th of November and join in really take in what you're saying. Do they really think, ah, oh, now I'm going to treat Shabbat properly? No. Or is it just an annual great fun? I think in a lot of situations, it is great fun. And I'd like to take up the point that Denise made about because she's single, it doesn't have the family orientation. I'm on my own because I've been widowed. And my kids, they do their own thing. Neither of them are married. My son's still looking for somebody. (laughs) Just get that one in. And I don't necessarily see them on a Friday night for dinner because they're you know, they're tired and, you know, so I'm also on my own or I see friends or whatever on a Friday night. I tend to do the Saturday rather than the Friday night. I like candles on the Friday night, Mm. obviously. But on the Saturday, you know, I go out to, I go to shul, I drive to shul, but I don't have a bag, I don't have my handbag, I don't have various things that I would normally have. It it is different. But as far as Shabbat UK, I don't really know whether people... I think people maybe just treat it as fun. Does it matter, though? Does that matter? Yes, I think it does, because the whole idea, surely, is to make so many of the people in this country now who who are Jewish but are not religiously Jewish or very seldom... I mean, I was completely shocked, if I have to say, when I went into synagogue on Simhat Torah and Shemini Haggad said it, how empty the synagogue, mm. which when I was younger, was always full, was totally, well, not totally, but was quite empty. Yes, that is a... But going back to Shabbat UK, if it just reaches out a hand and a couple of people touch it and say, well... Let's see what this is about. I don't think you're going to get people who have who are completely not communicating or not involved in the community, a community Shabbat at all. You're not going to get them suddenly in one day to become completely Shabbat observant. What you may do is just create an inquisitive curiosity, just a moment of, well, what that's all about then, eh? And to look into it. And then you never know where things could take. I think that the essence of Shabbat is the creation of a space in between the work and a space where we have, you could say, downtime, mindfulness, reflectiveness, some space where there's an elevated awareness. And also the the initiative of Shabbat UK is to not only introduce but to enhance people's experience of Shabbat in a more spiritual sense. And I don't think it should just be a United Synagogue initiative or owned by the United Synagogue. Indeed, 
there are many different ways of observing Shabbat, and it, you know, ultimately, we can't judge each each to its own, and it's a step by step mystical progression. I mean, I'm I, I'm very akin to the Chabad the Lubavitch philosophy, where they embrace every Jew, and mm-hmm. if somebody comes into a synagogue on any Shabbat, not just a Shabbat UK, they should be made to feel welcome. And that doesn't matter where they are, which place, where they are. I couldn't agree with you more yeah, about that. Absolutely. You've reminded me, actually, and this is not, in a sense, a funny story, but this actually happened. There was a deeply religious man, sadly no longer with us, but he was a deeply religious man. He, would go to, he wouldn't even take a handkerchief with him to, to synagogue every Shabbat. And during the summer one year, he was a member of Lord's. And when he'd had his Shabbat lunch, he went to Lord's and he walked in. Because he was a member, all he had to do was show his membership card. And he went in and sat down and sat next to another member of the MCC and a member of his synagogue and said to him, would you mind going and buying me a coffee because it is Shabbat (laughs) and I, I can't find one for myself. And I, I really think that that's making a mockery of it. And that's what worries me about these sort of things. Of course, classically, one Orthodox um, Jew is not supposed to ask an Orthodox... Uh, or any Jew. Jew. Or any, any Jew. Jew. Yeah. Any Jew to do anything. In fact, as I was saying that, of course, any Jew. So there has been the concept of, of people who are not Jewish assisting from families. And in fact that has enhanced mutual awareness and respect. Certainly, I was having a, a very interesting conversation a long while ago with someone who lived in, uh, you know, in Golders Green in London who knew pretty much all of the laws mm. and ritual observance because she'd, she'd helped out. And it, it, it's actually quite wonderful for community relations, that mutual respect. Absolutely. And yes. just, just, just to say... In my street where I live, there's a lot of very religious, very uh, Shabbat-observant people. The delivery guys who, you know, you never quite know when your parcel's going to be delivered. They they have frequently, they knock on the door and we open the door and then very often they look up, see the mezuzah, look at us and then say, and give it to us. And, we, and they'll say, do you, want, do you want me to sign for you? The postman does it. All the local delivery guys do it. I think it's incredibly thoughtful and respectful. We've had the postman in to help light a hob that, that had gone out. Mm. And it's lovely, and we, you know, we we are very respectful back, and it's a, it works beautifully for community. That's amazing. Mm. You know, I, I've never heard of that. Not <laughs> since, you know, sort of the year dot when you yeah, used no, to have, uh, to put it bluntly, Shabbat guy, who used to come in and light, the, you know, mm. put your lights on and do everything else. Can we talk though about the Shabbat candles? Because for me, if I light those, when I light those, they're particularly meaningful. And I'm conscious that Clive is surrounded by three, three, well, certainly two lovely ladies here this evening. Three, <laughs> Thank certainly you. three. And there is a centrality to that. It doesn't matter if you're, uh, one's male or female. To light the candles, one to guard and one to observe, brings down that elevated sense of Hashem's presence. And it's very special. For me, I, I certainly sense yeah. a I, shift I, in the energy in the I room. I think you're absolutely right about that. I know a most delightful woman. She's 96 years old. You wouldn't believe it. But now she can... Her family have moved away. They're less religious and all the rest of it. But every Friday night, she says... What is so important to her, and there's nobody there with her anymore, on the Friday night, she 
lights her candles and she says, mm. now I really feel that I've started a proper Shabbat and it will mm. be there. And she, she says that the, the candles are very special. And it's also oh, what's are. in your own mind as well, because, you know, you can just go light a couple of tea lights and put them, you know, in front of mm. the fireplace. And there is no presence in the room. There is no shift. So much of the, the mental shift, the energy that changes, whatever you, you call it, and I feel that very much too when I, when I light the candles, it's the one time in the week where I sort of look inwards and think of, I have a quick burst of my own ritual, mm. if you like, of all the people that are missing from my life, whether grandmothers and grandfathers mm. and, and aunts and uncles. And at that moment, I feel that they will never be gone because I bring them back down. And I think about them. Whereas when I was lighting a couple of candles one day, a couple of tea lights, didn't even think about it twice. I was kind of chatting while I was doing them and using my, my special little lighty thing. And because I didn't have the, the mental kind of link with it, I think that yes. the two need to be... You have to, you have concentrate. to be concentrating. That's the word. You have to be concentrating. And yeah. classically, yeah. and from a mystical Hasidic perspective, you do indeed bring your ancestors down. In fact, there are those who are from... That. that will bring... Yeah, yeah. You know, at that point, you're bringing them, them mm. down. There are those that are from will also light other candles for you know, other people or whatever, but you are actually bringing them down. So there is that spiritual link. We have that whole mystical link to our ancestors that runs through our contextual stuff when we pray. That's fantastic, uh, uh, Denise, what you're saying. <laughs> I find that quite very moving. Mm. And I, I wonder if in November when they have these special sh Shabbats, Shabbats or something, you know what I mean, yeah. um, when they have these special things, are they really going to give that feeling, which is what, it, what they should do to all these people who don't usually go to synagogue on Shabbat? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to say definitely, yes. The first Shabbat UK that I went to, my synagogue joined with St John's Wood and we had an, uh, I'm a South Hampstead United member and we had a fantastic time. And I'm going to say that I may made on that day one particular special friendship, a very dear friend of mine who I'd say, like myself, lives very much in a modern world but wanted to touch into the mysticism. There was definitely a mysticism at play and certainly last year it was very, very special and the Friday night hospitality that I enjoyed resulted in another lovely friendship. So, you know, deep, meaningful friendships can come out of a Shabbat meal or Shabbat table. And, it, you know, it doesn't only need to be the big push of Shabbat UK. It's the other friendships as well. Yeah. It is all about making connections. I'm, but I really think that surely Shabbat UK shouldn't just be the United Synagogues, though, should it? Uh, this is not just the exclusivity of the United Synagogue, far from it. I've certainly been into other synagogues where I've been made to feel incredibly welcome on Shabbat. So, you know, it's a meaningful experience and it is however you celebrate it, wherever you celebrate it, you know, it is meaning it is meaningful. And there are those as well that can't travel to Shaw but still celebrate it. And they light their candles and they may be at home. We we also have to think about those who who well, who for whatever reason this is where this is where that's, this a, is, this that's is a lovely where. way in which to end and we have to leave it there sadly. Right. But my thanks to our guests, community volunteer Andy Lucas and lawyer Denise Lester. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. 
Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes from Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Masorti Synagogue. The Jewish people are highly attuned to the idea of being responsible to society and to the world. Jews give tzedakah, mistranslated as charity, in far greater proportion than others. For example, in the U.S., the United Jewish Appeal, the main coordinated charity in the Jewish community, raises $750 million annually, making it the third largest charity in the country after the Red Cross. It doesn't sound so impressive. Keep in mind that Jews constitute about 2% of the total population of the United States. When you see a human being in distress, you have an obligation to help him. Judaism mandates positive and active behavior, which is a unique innovation in law. In other legal systems, it's not a crime to be a bystander, even today. In Judaism, however, social consciousness is a legal obligation. As the Torah states, do not stand by your neighbor's blood. I am a good person and don't hurt anyone is not the Jewish understanding of a good person. Being a good person requires us to take action, not just avoid evil. You are either part of the problem or part of the solution. There is no neutrality for a Jew. However, Judaism is not only about responsibility for the world, but also for our family, for our partner, for our children. The Talmud says that a father is obligated to circumcise his son, to redeem him if he is the firstborn, to teach him Torah, to find him a wife, and to teach him a trade. Talmudic scholars added later that a father must also teach his son to swim. These directives are all intended to help a child grow into a successful and independent adult, one who will be part of the Jewish community, establish a household, and find meaningful work. I do want to stop a minute in the responsibility to teach our children Torah, and I see this in the widest sense as teaching your children Judaism and helping them build a Jewish identity. I had many conversations with parents that seem to believe that their lack of Jewish knowledge is an exemption in this matter that enables them to outsource this obligation either to a shul or to a Jewish school. I will pay somebody else to make my child Jewish. Dear friends, it doesn't work like that. Nobody can replace you as the main example and inspiration for your child. Even when they are teenagers and they seem to hate you, and do the opposite of what you say them to do, they are still observing you. If you don't show that Judaism is important for you, then it will never be important for your children. If you express that coming to shul is a burden, then it will always be a burden for your son. If you express that having a Pesach Seder is boring and too long, then it will be boring and long for your daughter. Judaism is not genetics and it's not a social club. It is a way of life. And if you don't live a deep Jewish life, then why do you expect your children to do so? doesn't matter what the rabbi do, what the teacher says. If the dissonance with home is too wide, it will be your personal example as a parent that will always say the final word. 
Thank you to Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, David Siegel, Rabbi Pincus Hackenbroch, Joanne Rosenthal. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Andy Lucas and Denise Lester. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producer, Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.